um, verses 1 to 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, Put oil in your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, let me add my welcome to Ken's. Um, welcome to all of you and to those watching online as well. As we continue our series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, we've reached this part at the start of chapter 6. So I'm going to pray, ask that God will help us as we grapple with a really well-known passage, but one that speaks pretty sharply to our daily living as believers. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. Uh, we acknowledge that it is living and active, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes even of our hearts. And so we pray that you might do that good but often hard work for us as your spirit uh, convicts us of truths. Help us to be challenged afresh tonight, uh, to hear your voice clearly and to respond where needed in repentance and renewed trust in you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a story of a young boy named Johnny um, who was at home on one Saturday and the home landline rang and he went to pick it up. But as he did so, he heard his father yell out in the background through gritted teeth, if it's that guy from the office, tell him I'm not home. Later that day, they went driving as a family to go and visit friends and as they were driving along, his father was boasting about this new device he'd put on his dashboard of his car so that he could see police radars that were coming up and therefore speed and not get caught. Later that evening, the family went out to a restaurant for dinner 
And after the meal, as they were leaving, um, Johnny's mother noted that they'd been undercharged and wanted to go back. His father said, well, that's their tough luck. And out they strode. As it got to the end of the day that evening, Johnny thought what a good Saturday it had been compared to the previous Saturday where his father had grounded him for cheating on his math test. Now we love to point out hypocrisy, don't we? Or to vent our condemnation when we see people acting one way and then judging others differently. But of course there's a danger even for Christians who are striving for godliness because we're not immune to falling into the trap of being a hypocrite. We can easily create an outward facade to others, but then underneath that we're not really living as people are thinking we are. And that's why the warnings of chapter 6 here, the start of this chapter, flow naturally on from what Jesus has been teaching in chapter 5, Christ's really breathtaking outline of the Father's moral demands of those that would follow him, where Jesus outlines the true understanding of the law, which is not about us just keeping external regulations and thinking that we can tick boxes, but it's actually about our heart and our motivation as we live out his word moment by moment. Now, you might have remembered that at the end of last week, we got to the end of chapter 5, and in verse 48, Jesus demanded perfection. He said, be perfect as your father is perfect. But here as we start chapter 6, verse 1, we suddenly have, be careful. You see, Jesus is well aware of the human heart's tendency for self-deception. And so he actually issues a strong warning that sort of unfolds through this chapter. Notice chapter 6, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so it's be perfect, chapter 5, verse 48, be careful, chapter 6, verse 1. And so I think this first section of Matthew's um, chapter 6 deals with these fundamental acts of righteousness for the Jewish faith, uh, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And of course, these are spiritual disciplines or habits of grace, which Christians are to continue to grow in today as well. And therefore, as we reflect on this passage for this evening, I think the big question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. How can I develop genuine, genuinely motivated habits of grace? How can I develop genuinely motivated habits of grace? We're going to step through these three practices now. Well, the first answer to that question is this, by giving in secret, by giving in secret. So notice again what Jesus said from verses 2 to 4. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, notice here that Jesus starts with the wrong practice and the outcome that flows from that. And that will be the pattern throughout this passage. He speaks about false righteousness here where people are trying to impress others. 
And so hence the giving that is announced with trumpets. I mean, why would you do that? But Jesus clearly states the motivation for such an ostentatious action is that they might be honoured by others. The person here is actually concerned more with being known as being generous, of developing a reputation for giving. And Jesus is no less clear about the result of such a false motivation. It actually achieves, he says, what it sets out to do. It gets the praise of people around you, but that is all. The attention and praise from others is their full reward. God is not impressed and he will not reward such self-interested actions. Now, this is a struggle for us. It's been a struggle for the church down through the last two millennium. It's a struggle even in church buildings, I might add. I'm sure many of you have been to more fancy cathedrals than this one, uh, where you often have pews that have been donated by a family and they'll have a plaque on the end of the pew donated by the Jones family or the Smith family or there'll be this wonderful um, stained glass window in the back of the cathedral and will have underneath it who donated the money so that this might exist in the church. Because there's a problem with that, isn't there, uh, given what Jesus is saying here. I remember one Anglican minister preaching at the Katoomba Convention some years ago, and he says, I feel like I go along to every single one of those plaques and write on them in big text, paid in full, paid in full. You've received whatever you're going to get by everyone walking past and looking at your name on the plaque. But Jesus says that people who give in such a manner, whether it's on the street or in the synagogue, or we might say today in the church or toward charities, or that guy that's sitting with a sign outside the mall, if we do it simply to impress actors, then we're hypocrites. And that word in the original Greek just means <laughs> what we know it to mean, an actor, somebody who puts a mask on and is playing a part a person who's presenting themselves in a certain way to others. So the person may even talk themselves into believing that they're, they're doing something that's from their heart. They're conducting themselves in a way that's in the best interests of the needy person. Of course, the needy person is not going to complain. They're probably going to be quite grateful, aren't they, uh, that, about the contribution that's been made to them. But they may just add to the self-delusion of the person giving whatever their token is. See, the problem is that everyone agrees that giving is good, but motivation is the key. Motivation is paramount, Jesus says. And Jesus wants to go on then and give the correct approach. Notice what follows. The major protection against such hypocritical giving is to avoid public actions. In fact, he says, don't even consciously think about keeping score of what you're giving. That's the phrase. Don't even let your left hand know what your right is doing. Such privacy, of course, doesn't ensure right motives. I could still have a wrong motive in my heart, but it does ensure that I'm not being prompted by my peers looking on. And so if you're giving at church or you're giving to a missionary or maybe you're even supporting uh, Dave Craft as our ministry apprentice, all good things to do, don't let others know about it. This is where automated payments can come in quite well, right? I really don't know what my left hand and my right hand are doing because there's so many automated payments flying out of my bank account. I don't know what's happening from week to week. That's where we can be helped, right, um, by not taking score, if the person is outside the supermarket, Woolies or Coles or something, 
Well, we've got to be careful, haven't we? We've got to think through what we're doing. If we do give something, are we just giving a token so that we feel better? Is it just massaging our guilt? Or do we really care for the person and what will happen to them the next day and something beyond that moment with whatever might be handed to them, let alone for the surrounding passing crowd that might be watching us as we give something? We've got to be so careful in this area that our ultimate desire is that we're trying to please God and we're not looking for the praise of others. In the end, our life is really only played out in front of an audience of one in terms of the one who counts. Only God will judge us. And God knows whether we've acted out of true compassion, whether we're doing something in order to serve the needs of those around us or whether we're just wanting to be seen as generous. And that brings us to a second answer about how to develop genuine habits of grace. Secondly, by mainly praying privately. By mainly praying privately. Notice again where Jesus goes on from verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, again, Jesus starts, we see this pattern with the wrongly motivated approach this time to prayer and he's looking at things that happened in the first century in the jewish synagogue uh, services in jesus day in the first century uh, would often involve prayers and usually the person praying was a customarily a male member of the congregation who could no doubt easily succumb to praying up to the audience and so the length of their prayer and the words they said or the emotion that they invested in it, it could all be part of a show designed to win the approval of others. In fact, at times of public fasts and sometimes for the daily afternoon sacrifice at the temple in the afternoon, there would actually be a trumpet that was blown that would signify that time of the day which then allowed people to turn standing where they were on the street. They're out doing their shopping, whatever, and they could turn, face the temple, and pray out loud on the street corner. What's well, a good reminder to pray because it opens that action to an abuse, doesn't it? The very thing that Jesus is talking about. Suddenly there's an opportunity for people walking past to say, oh, wow, look at that pious guy. He stopped in the middle of his busy day and there he is facing the temple and praying out loud and look how long he prays. Well, again, in our modern day in church or in public, we've got to be careful, haven't we, that we're not praying to be seen by others. I think we've just got to be well aware of our own capacity for hypocrisy and self-delusion on this and other things when we're in public. 
And as with the issue of giving, a practical way of guarding our motives, Jesus says, is to focus on private prayer. Now, Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer. I can mention that at the start. We might read verse 6 and think, oh, maybe we should never pray in public because of this danger. But if so, the early church misunderstood Jesus' teaching completely because they, we have many records of public prayer happening as we read the start of the church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, we hear about these public prayers that are being given. So it's not that, clearly. What Jesus is wanting is to promote a genuine prayer life. True dependence on God is expressed in heartfelt, pleasing way to God. I'm sure many of you know um, eight-ninths of the bulk of an iceberg is below the waterline. It's out of sight. That's why it's so dangerous, right, for ships. Only one-ninth is visible above the surface. Our prayer life should be like an iceberg, with about one-ninth in public prayer or maybe in your home group and eight-ninths below the water. No one's seeing it. Your private prayer before God in your bedroom with the door closed, wherever it might be. I think we comprehend Jesus' point here better if we start asking some diagnostic questions of ourselves with regard to our prayer life. For example, do I pray more frequently, more fervently in public than I do in private? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? Or if God was listening to my public prayer, would he be in shock that it did not match what happened in the rest of the week? See, Jesus goes on to offer some further instruction, doesn't he, with the length of prayers as well. He mentions pagans in that day, in the first century. There were many idle uh, temples around uh, the first century world. Much of the Roman and Greek pantheon was worshipped by many within the empire. And so many pagans who worshipped idols in Jesus' day thought that if they named all of the gods that you might name and repeated all of their needs before each god's name, then they'd have a better chance of being heard and their prayer answered. So you just keep repeating your prayers over and over and naming a new God. And maybe then with the weight of words, you know, there'll be an answer that comes to you. And sadly, Jesus is saying that it was true even in Jewish culture, even though they're praying to the one true God, they could fall into this way of just babbling and repeating phrases thinking that somehow God will be impressed, as if our prayers are like some word document and, you know, God's checking the word count at the bottom. Oh, 500 words. Wow, I think I'll have to answer this prayer. There's a danger, isn't there, where we can be, in so doing, trying to twist God's arm. If there's a mindset behind that kind of way of thinking, it's that, well, maybe I can manipulate God into doing things for me. If I, if I show myself to pray at such length and use important words or whatever it might be, then God will feel compelled to respond in my life. It's a great danger. Now, God likewise is not telling us here that we should never pray with more than half a dozen words. That's not the point. It's about the heart again. It's about our motivation, our expression of our dependence being genuine before God. That's what he's wanting to see from us. Likewise, in verse 8, it's not saying that we should never ask for anything because God already knows what we need. 
Yes, he knows your need even before you voice it in prayer, but he invites us to pray and to express our dependence upon him. But again, he's wanting to see the attitude of heart that we come to our prayer life with. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, uh, this is scary, this praying thing. There are so many pitfalls here about how we could get it wrong. If only there was a model that Jesus could give us so that we don't get this all wrong. And, of course, that's exactly where Jesus goes from verse 9. This is the context of Jesus' model prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. In verses 9 to 13, Jesus is instructing his disciples. But notice, it's how to pray. It's not what you should pray. This is not the only prayer we might pray. This is a model of how we should approach it, that we might have a right framework to voice our concerns and our dependence before God. That's important, isn't it? Because it's ironic that in a context where Jesus is forbidding meaningless repetition of prayers, that we have a model prayer that's been repeated more than any other in churches for the last 2,000 years. Now, it's not that it's a bad prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. But we need to say it and mean it and have the right attitude as we do. It's a wonderful thing to repeat in unison as a church body. If we're thoughtful, if it becomes just a rote learned thing that rattles off and our mind is not engaged with what our mouth is saying, then we undermine what Jesus has granted us in the gift of the Lord's Prayer. We're only going to unpack it briefly tonight, but notice there are six requests or petitions in this prayer. And notice that the first three are all directed towards God. It's about his name, his kingdom, and his will. The Christian's primary concern, first and foremost, is that God's name be honoured or hallowed, that his kingdom would come, not my kingdom or my plans for tomorrow. It's about his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And only then do the next three petitions actually focus on ourselves, our daily bread, our sins, our temptations. And so notice here that um, even as Jesus goes into the second part of the prayer, there is both our physical needs, our need for food and survival day by day, but then also our spiritual needs, our standing before the Lord. But the first three requests are put at the start for a reason. Uh, so often we rush to our wish list, don't we, of things that we're wanting. They may be great burdens. I don't want to dismiss that either. We, we can face hard things day by day, week by week, and they're the first thing that we race to as we go to God with our list of needs. But notice here, the delight for Jesus' followers is God's glory firstly, God's reign, God's will. After that, we come to our needs before our God and the needs of others around us. And it's a wonderful start um, to this uh, prayer as well. The Jews were taught to begin their prayers with very transcendent titles um, expressed toward God, uh, Lord of heaven, King of the universe. But Jesus instructs his followers to say, Our Father. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the phrase Lord of heaven, King of the universe. These things are very true, but they can make God seem distant, perhaps, in our mind, less concerned, perhaps, with our needs as his children by faith. But Jesus makes it very personal, doesn't he? Express this prayer to your Father in heaven. 
Well, much more could be said about the Lord's Prayer. You could do a whole sermon just unpacking phrase by phrase, but we don't have time to do that tonight. But we do have a podcast on Wednesday, so if there are questions that come out of that, feel free uh, to send them into the church office. But I just want to note at this point simply that Jesus provides this wonderful model of prayer. It gives us the right priorities, and it's a prayer that's devoid of repetition, focused on God's greatness and his rule in our world. But then it can leave us wondering, verses 14 and 15, where does that fit? It's like this little addendum on the end of the Lord's Prayer, and it's all about not forgiving people. Where does this fit in? These verses are suggesting to us that we have a temptation as believers. And that temptation is even though we pray, forgive others as, we, as they forgive us, that we actually hold on to bitterness and anger, that we actually haven't forgiven we maintain an outward appearance. We might pray and say the words, but then secretly not actually be fulfilling them. If I am not forgiving others, I can't pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm being false at that point. And Jesus is saying, stop. Think about what it is that you're praying. And let's not twist the words other either. Uh, so often we're good at applying God's word, right, to others, and we see it less relevant to ourselves and the things that we are struggling with. And so we'll require forgiveness of others. Say, look, see, it tells you that you should forgive me. And then we withhold forgiveness from the next person. Jesus is saying, worry about your godliness. Think about your standing. Don't twist the words of the Lord's Prayer. There's a story of a minister who once parked his car in a no-parking zone in a big city. Uh, he had this appointment. It was an important one. He'd circled the block time after time, couldn't find a parking space. Time's running out. I just have to park here. Parks in the no-parking zone, but he knows that the policeman, the ranger, is going to come along and probably give him a ticket. And so he leaves a note on his windscreen, and he says, I've circled the block ten times. I'm unable to find a park. I'm going to miss my appointment. Forgive us our sins. Goes off to his appointment. He comes back to his car sometime later. There's a ticket on his windshield and a note in return. And the note in return says, I've been circling this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'm going to lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. <laughs> Let's be genuine in the way we think about the Lord's Prayer and in our own prayer life. May we focus on private prayer. May we desire to please God rather than people or to twist things to our ends. That brings me to a third and a final answer to this question of, well, how can we develop genuine habits of grace? Well, thirdly, by fasting unnoticed. By fasting unnoticed. Look again at what is stated in verses 16 to 18. When you fast, Jesus says, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
So again, as with giving, as with prayer, Jesus is not rejecting the idea of fasting. Rather, he's interested in condemning the abuse of such practice. He's wanting these practices to come from the heart, to not be done in a way that is just acting for the praise of people. And you see, in the Jewish calendar, there were often national times of fasting. We don't know anything of that sort today, but uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, New Year's Day in the Jewish calendar would be a national fast for all the people. The nation would stop. Everyone would fast. In addition to that, there were individuals who would fast at other times for personal reasons. So it might be because of reasons of moral self-discipline and they wanted to discipline themselves by fasting. Or, secondly, it could be a sign of deep repentance and brokenness uh, for sin in their life before the Lord, and to show their remorse and their determination to change as they fasted as well as prayed. Sometimes it was part of an important request in their prayer life. They're asking for some great need in their life or their family's life, whatever it might be. So they fasted as well. These are all great reasons that Christians could fast today as well. But what started as a spiritual self-discipline, at least in Jesus' day in the first century, could be turned into an act of self-righteousness. With people pulling pained expressions, with people going about making it really clear that they were fasting, uh, not washing, looking like they were struggling, at times even putting ashes on their head, which was something that people only usually did when they were mourning. All of this just to inform onlookers that they were truly fasting. The hope being, again, that people would say, oh, look at this person, look how pious they are. It's not even a national fast, but here they are, fasting in this way. And so things like ashes, which were once a sign of self-humiliation, became an opportunity for self-display. And Jesus is saying, don't do this. Act normally if you're fasting. God will know that you're fasting. Wash your face, use oil on your head. Now, we wouldn't um, put oil on our head. Uh, that wouldn't be helpful today. But we're to dress normally, we're to behave normally, we're to look no different to it at any other time. Otherwise, our motives then are drawn into question. And our motives can be drawn into question so easily. It's like the story of the husband and wife that say, Oh, look, we can't wait. We're thinking about this trip to Israel. We're going to go to the Holy Land. Wouldn't it be great to go to Jerusalem, to go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall? And the husband said, yeah, when we got there, we could, you know, announce the Ten Commandments out loud. And his wife reflected on that for a moment and said, perhaps we should stay home and actually keep them. See, the application of throughout this section seems really obvious to us. But it's biting because we're so aware that we never quite meet up to what Jesus is calling his people to do. It's so easy for false motives just to sneak in, even with the best intention. So as we conclude and draw some of the application of this passage together, let me say this. I think the challenge for us today is whether being thought generous is more important than being generous. Whether gaining a reputation for prayerfulness is more important than just personally expressing our complete dependence on God when no one is listening but him. Whether fasting is something that I would only do if I could tell people about it. 
You know, if, if such false motivations creep in, then these acts of righteousness, these habits of grace, actually become acts of sin. So be generous, but just don't tell anyone what you're giving or doing. Insist even if you're helping an individual that they remain silent, not tell others about it. Pray far more in secret than you ever do in public. And lastly, by all means, fast, but don't let anyone know that you're doing so. In each of these spiritual disciplines, genuine Christian living is characterized by just one simple, profound desire to please our Heavenly Father and no one else. And it's not as if by doing these things that the reward that is spoken about Jesus by Jesus is something that drives us, that somehow we're motivated uh, to get an award. It's not as a follower of Jesus that we can earn heaven. There's no way that we can earn our way by being a really prayerful person or somebody who's really generous that's given away a lot of our money. It is only by God's grace the giving of his son and his perfect life, his death and resurrection, that we're made right with God. But if we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we've realized our bankruptcy because of our sin and we've come to salvation, then we are called to grow in godliness, to learn to love our Lord. And these habits of grace are a wonderful way of drawing closer to the Lord and growing in our likeness to our Saviour. There is a wonderful reward, as Jesus says, but it's just not in this life. Our reward comes at the end, at the resurrection of the righteous. We live to please God because of the final day. There's a true story of an elderly missionary couple who are returning back to America after many decades of service in Africa. And it just so happened that they were on the same ship as the president of the United States of the day, Theodore Roosevelt. He had been to Africa with a whole posse of people to go on a big game hunt. And as they pulled into New York Harbor, there were thousands upon thousands of well-wishers there to welcome the president back. All the reporters lined up to hear about his great exploits, how many lions he killed, whatever it might have been. And as all the crowd finally cleared and the missionary couple were able to come off after the important people had first disembarked, they found that not one person was there to welcome them. And as they took a taxi back to their hotel, the husband said to his wife, it just doesn't seem right. You know, we've served the Lord for 40 years in Africa and it seems like nobody knows or even cares. And as they prayed about it later that night, they felt that the Lord was saying to them, you know why it is that you haven't received your reward yet? It's because you're not home yet. This is not your home. See, our reward is simply not the earthly praise of others. It's so fleeting. But more than that, it is so empty in comparison to the eternal welcome of our Lord and Saviour. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, this is hard for us because we live in an age where, you know, unless something is put on social media, it wasn't worth doing. That an event didn't happen unless it's been covered and everyone got to hear about it. In such an age, one practical way of reorienting our self-seeking hearts 
is to pray the Lord's Prayer, to pray it from the heart, a prayer that focuses on God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will. And when it comes to us, it's largely just about our sinfulness and our temptation. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? That's the right priority. Here is one antidote to an attention-seeking age which is all so easily drawn to the praise of others. So I want us to pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer. They're going to be on the screen in a moment. It's the NIV translation. You may know it off by heart in different language, but I encourage you to use this language. But as we do so, we don't want to fall into the pitfalls that Jesus has just outlined. So we want to pray this with meaning, with our minds engaged, that we might truly say it and live in the light of the priorities that Christ gives us. So will you join me as we pray this out loud together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Amen.